Our lectionary reading today from Acts chapters 6 and 7 tell the story of the calling of the first deacons to this fledgling little church, this little body of new believers who are um, seeking to find their way in a world where they've been now left by Jesus who has ascended into heaven. Among those who are chosen is uh, one named Stephen, who Luke describes as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Beginning with verse 8, we read the story of Stephen. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. So they secretly instigated some of the men to say, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted Stephen, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed to us. All who sat in the council looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these things so? And Stephen begins a long uh, sermon, I suppose, a long narrative, reciting for them, reminding them of the history of the children of Israel, the people of God. He concludes with these words, beginning with verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're forever opposing the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. When they heard these things, They became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed unto heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But the council covered their ears And with a loud shout, all rushed together against Stephen. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. May we hear the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, take words from an old, old story and breathe the life that is needed for us to hear it and internalize it and apply it to our day and our lives. In your holy name we pray. Amen. We invite our children to be dismissed for their time of worship at this point. Thank you. Sorry about this. My cousin's Marco Rubio, by the way. Just Come on, help me here. I had a bad habit some years ago of uh, stopping on the side of highways in order to gather rocks. My poor family would sit in the car and roll their eyes and Uh, have a conversation about when their father should be taken to an institution as I, you know, as cars whiz by and I looked for rocks. Um, I don't know a lot about rocks. Um, I didn't take geology or anything like that. I just used the rocks in my yard, kind of borders for the flower beds or landscaping. Uh, I I did this because I thought the rocks look nice. They're natural. They're sturdy. They don't go anywhere, but best of all, they're free. They're just out there. I have a little of my father's uh, West Virginia coal mining mentality that if it's free, it's got to be good. So I picked up rocks. But when you handle rocks for an extended period of time, uh, even someone as uninformed as I am can begin to realize not all rocks are the same. Some are thick and dense and heavy and solid, while others are sort of flaky. They, they crumble. They, they, they'll, they'll fall apart even in your hands. And in that, you begin to look at the rock and see things in the rock. Of course, you've done this. You've seen the fossils, and you've seen that there's a story here. There's some sacredness. There's, there's life here. Terry's from West Texas where the land grows rocks. Rocks just sort of burp up out of the ground all the time. It's, it's a phenomenal. And that's the way the biblical land looks. Just rocks everywhere. So rocks became a common and prominent feature of the biblical story. To use them, to employ them, to help tell the story. And so we hear the story in Joshua, where he commands the leaders of the 12 tribes, each to bring a rock, a a stone, to put it on his shoulder and bring a stone from the center of the Jordan River and set it up on the other side into the promised land as a reminder, as a marker, so that later on, when their children would come by and ask, what do these stones mean? You can tell them, Joshua said. You can tell them the story of how God has done something in and through the people that has transformed the world. We read earlier, Psalm 31, where the psalmist has the image of God as a rock. 
God, you're our rock. You're our fortress. And you can feel in that the strength and the sturdiness and the, the dependability, the permanence of all that. Jesus pointed to Simon Peter and said, on this rock, I'll build my church, on this faith, on this, on this life. And he instructed his followers to be like the wise and not the foolish, to build your house on rock, not on sand. Sand moves, sand, sand shifts, rocks stay in place. Of course, I love the passage, I think from Luke, where on Palm Sunday, as the crowds are following Jesus into Jerusalem as he rides on a donkey, and they're shouting their hosannas, the critics say, tell your disciples to be quiet, to which Jesus responds, if they're quiet, even the rocks, the very rocks, will begin to cry out. So this sense that rocks and stones take on a, a sacred identity, a, a sacred part of, of our story of faith. But like everything in life, everything I've been able to realize or think about in life, stones have their shadow side. Things have shadow sides. Stones can be used to build up dividing walls that separate people and judge some as worthy to come in and others not worthy and forced to stay out. Stones are used to create millstones, originally to grind grain, but later the millstone became a symbol of an obligation or an imposed weight or a judgment. Better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea, said Jesus, than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Shadows. And then in Acts 6 and 7, we read how stones become killing stones. The story of this man named Stephen, the face of an angel, who, because of his liberation, his transformation, because of the risen Christ, he is one of the followers who has been awakened by this love into such a profound sense of gratitude and, and newness of life that he's talking about it. He's He's in conversation and dialogue with people in the temple, and it turns out to be a threat and affront to those who have a fear and control-based religion. And so they pick up stones and employ them as tools of assassination. It's a pretty horrific scene. I remember in high school... One of the days that I paid attention, we read this short story called The Lottery. Do you remember The Lottery, Shirley Jackson? Uh, a powerful story of a sweet little community that somehow in the end stones one of its members to death. What does it sound like? What noise does stone hitting flesh and bone make? What's that feel like to be hit? What's that feel like to throw? And how would you ever get rid of that feeling of throwing a stone at another person? That the, the weight that you held, the, the exertion you used, the sound of the impact, and the visual. What happened? How does that happen? How do good, dedicated, disciplined Orderly people do such a horrific thing. 
These are people who are so, so orderly and, and by the book that they take their jackets off. They don't want to get them dirty. They lay them at the feet of someone named Saul, who we'll later find is the person that we now know as Paul. How does this happen? That they employ stones as killing tools. I notice in this and in all of life, it seems, a kind of pattern. For the very same stones, the very same stones that can represent strength and courage, the assurance of Jesus, build your house on the rock, the psalmist saying God is our rock and our our refuge, those very same stones can become killing stones in the hands of people who are fearful or who believe in a theology of scarcity, that there's not enough. For people who want to demand safety and who insist on conformity, everyone has to look and act and talk and be just like me. For I get to set the the standard. That same pattern, the same stones that can be used to build a refuge, a place of safety, a place of inclusion, a place of beauty like the sanctuary made of stone, can also be used to keep some people out, people who offend us, people who threaten us, people who need something from us, people who make us uncomfortable or unhappy because they're just different from us. The same stones that can do good can do bad. The same stones that can mark a moment or set a good and needed boundary can also devolve. They can be used instead to protect what sounds and seems good and safe and normal to me. The question can move from how can I be an instrument of love to what's in it for me and mine. We begin to distrust the teachings of God. We begin to suspect that maybe they're not true. That forgiveness and honesty, that peacemaking, that equality in our diversity and even abundance, well, we can say they're not rational. They don't calculate. In fact, there are some who would say things like honesty, forgiveness and peace and equality and abundance aren't even biblical. And we're pretty sure they're not patriotic because our country doesn't act this way. Here's where the gospel of Jesus Christ invites us into a radically different way of living. This sense that the gospel, I love the way Meredith said it, it's not about making sure you're at church on time. It's about making sure that you're the church wherever you go. This radically different way of living. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except by me, by this way. Jesus was not. Jesus was not giving some kind of secret passcode for an exclusive club. Wouldn't that be nice if we all had the secret code so that we could go to heaven when we die? 
But what if I am the way and the truth and the life is about a journey, about your life, moving from from childhood into adolescence and adult life into senior adult life, always asking the question, what does it mean to follow this way of Jesus? What does it mean to live into the truth of God? That there's a mystery that connects all of us together. What does it mean to believe in life? That there's more to life than than meets the eye. In In this way, in this truth, in this life, the first priority is never what's in it for me. Jesus said, trust that God will take care of all the things you need. You seek first God's dream, God's justice, God's righteousness, and everything else will take care of itself. This journey invites us to ask, how can I bring God's love? Sacrificial, self-giving, cross kind of love into the world, not to be a martyr, not to be a hero, but simply to be faithful, to trust that sacred flow that is God. This way of love that we believe, not only because the Bible tells us, but because we experience resurrection, life after death, that there's more to life, that Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth, leads to this life, life in all of its fullness. And so the writer of 1 Peter says, You're invited, you, me, ordinary people are invited to become what he calls living stones, not killing stones, but living stones. Let yourself be built, he said, into a spiritual house that is a a community that's based on spirit and love into a holy priesthood and offer what he calls your spiritual sacrifice, what you give who you are, how you love, whether you're a child or an adult, whether you're new at this or been doing it a long time, how you give of your life to be part of this larger work of love that God is always doing. Isn't that what Jesus prayed? God, your dream, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as in heaven. When we're at our best, church, And sometimes we are at our best, occasionally. When we're at our best, we ask each of us individually, and we ask ourselves as a group, am I living as a killing stone or a living stone? Am I taking this Easter mystery that life is stronger than death and living into it, becoming a living stone that God can use to build up what? What is it that God builds? The writer of First Peter gives us a great clue. He says this, this thing being built, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Now, in our day of construction, cornerstones don't mean as much. They're mostly symbolic. But in their day, cornerstones set the position of a building which direction it was going to face, how other stones were placed, and the purpose of all the other stones were oriented around this cornerstone. The cornerstone of what God is building is Jesus the Christ. 
That's why we talk about Jesus all the time. We're not trying to say we're right and other religions are wrong. We're trying to say this way, this truth, this life is the way that we have found to live into the fullness of what life invites us to live. Turn the other cheek. Forgive 70 times 7. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. These are all ways that Jesus teaches us to live, and it affects every single facet of our lives, our homes, our work, our school, here at church, how we do church together, how we speak and work, how we honor each other, how we deal with differences, how we use our money, even how we do advocacy work for justice. We cannot claim to do God's justice if our method includes throwing killing stones. We're called to be living stones. I watched this week with kind of a voyeuristic horror as a man I knew took great offense at something that had been said. He had some righteous indignation going and he had picked up some some killing stones that polarized and insulted and cut and wounded. And I thought, whoa, this is about to get real here. There's going to be a response in time. There's going to be a throwdown here. You better run for cover because this person's going to return fire. But I watched a miracle. I watched the other person, the recipient of those killing stones, pick up those stones one by one. And transform them into living stones. To redeem the situation. To reconcile with the broken brother. To take the other in and to invite, for, invite something new to emerge. A new relationship. A new pattern. A new possibility. Long ago, Edwin Markham penned a short, short poem that said, They drew a circle. That shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. It's the gospel of love. It's hard. It's why we come together on Sunday. To reinforce this memory. To develop this pattern. This mental pattern of being the people of God. Well, I no longer pick up stones by the side of the highway. I want to propose, though, a more dangerous practice. Picking up the killing stones that are all around us. The landscape around us is littered with killing stones. And see if you can do a miracle. Through the power of God alone. Hold that killing stone. That insult. That that thing that has divided you, hold that and see if God couldn't transform it into a living stone of harmony, of goodness, of love. Do you think it's possible? Let's pray together. God, our rock and redeemer. 
Left to our own devices, we throw stones. You come into our lives, even as you came into young Meredith's life, and began a work that slowly starts to heal and form us. Time and again, even despite our best intentions, we have fallen away. We bent over and picked up the stone and, does, and, and have done what seems most natural to us. Take us, we pray, to our truest nature, our, our truest self, that we might be able to live with humility and grace, with deep confidence and assurance and the capacity to let you do the healing work of love in all the stones in this world. In the name of Jesus, the Christ, we pray. Amen.